settle down. <laughs> 135, 145, 155. Those are the tea times for Tiger Woods, <laughs> Ricky Fowler, and Brooks Kepka. So we have plenty of time, unless you're holding one of those $150 tickets to be out on the course, in which case, go ahead and leave, we'll wait. It is great to be here. Thank you for choosing this over the PGA this morning. And it's especially good for me because, well, I loved preaching in the first service. These are my people. <laughs> and, and it's so good to be with you. If, if there are some that I haven't met, my name is Kevin Crosley. My family and I have been attending First Free Church for a little over 16 years. And... And it is our family. And God has blessed us richly in the time that we've been here. He's used this to minister to us and to develop us and to grow us. And that's kind of the point this morning. I have one simple idea for you that's amazing and full of hope. And it's this. That God prepares us for what he prepares for us. Let me say that again. God prepares us for what he prepares for us. Now, I want to do a couple of things before we dive in. The first is to let you know that I got a great text this morning um, from Luoyang, China. My daughter Lauren is there for a year, and she sent me a note saying that she was watching in the first service. Um, and it was really encouraging to know that she was praying for me halfway around the world. She's gone to bed now, but... now. You guys, I got a job for you over here, okay? So just hold on. You ready? In this service, my friend Jana from Germany is watching the live stream. So all of her friends over there, let's say, hi, Jana. Hi. There we go. Jana, I'm glad you're here. Um, you didn't know that this is worldwide. I mean, this service reaches the globe, and you guys have got the best seats in the house, so we're talking about how God prepares us for what he's prepared for us. And so let's start with where my preparation began. And it's here at Idlewild Pines Campground. Now, this is a campground in the hills and the mountains of Southern California. I grew up in California. And this is where I went every year to summer camp. But the summer that I turned 15, I went not as a camper, but as a junior counselor. And what they did was they took the junior counselors and would have them come a day early for a day of leadership training and development. And, and I suppose that during that day, they talked about how to treat the counselors and how to get them to meals on time and how to get them to go to sleep, how to share with them about the messages that they were hearing, and probably how to pray with them about the significant things that were going on in their lives. I say I suppose because while I was in the training, I wasn't really paying attention. I was instead focusing on trying to solve a problem that I discovered when I got to camp. A problem that I knew if I couldn't find a solution to, I was going to be in trouble. And so when the training was over for the day, I made my way across camp and I found the payphone and I called home to talk to my mom. And fortunately, she was home and she answered the phone because this was before cell phones. It was even before we had that first generation of voicemail called an answering machine. And so she answered, and when she answered, I said, Mom, 
I realized when I got here that I failed to pack any underwear. <laughs> and I think it's going to be a long week. <laughs> That's how prepared I was for my first leadership opportunity. But as I look back on that, almost 40 years later, I can see how God used that time that week to start preparing me for all of the exciting things that he'd prepared for me. And we're going to get a chance to see in Mark 12, we're going to get a chance to see in Mark 12 how God prepared the disciples for the things that he'd prepared for the disciples. We're continuing our series in Mark, and we are at the end of Mark chapter 12. And you can read in your Bibles or in the YouVersion app. Um, the YouVersion app, some of you have got, you can go to events and click on First Free, and it'll pop up the sermon um, scripture. Um, the YouVersion app has transformed the way that our high school students read their Bibles. It comes with daily reminders. They friend each other and they can track who's getting into the word and how they're doing and what studies they're doing. And it's fantastic. There's whole communities in our senior high group built around communicating with the YouVersion app. So some of you go, hey, you know, I don't need the online version, but let me just tell you, it's making a huge difference for our students. All right, let's take a look at Mark 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple. Opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. Now, let me draw your attention to the first three words, Jesus sat down. Because it gives us a chance to step back a little bit and see, okay, where are we in Jesus' ministry? Where are we in the book of Mark? And why is this sitting down in verse 41 significant? Here's why. Last week, Adam talked about Jesus preaching in the temple court. And he preached with riddles and he preached with new teaching that the people were delighted with. And the, the teachers of the law were infuriated by but what wasn't clear last week is that that teaching in the temple was the last recorded public ministry of Jesus' life. Behind him are the crowds and feeding the 5,000 and healing large groups of people and people following him all over the place. Behind him are all of the journeys back and forth to minister in different towns. And ahead of him is betrayal, the Last Supper, praying in the garden, arrest, torture, crucifixion. And beyond that, resurrection and ascension, Pentecost and the church. So when Jesus sits down in verse 41, this is a turning point in his time with the disciples. And Jesus knows what's ahead but the disciples don't. So Jesus sits down and he watches people putting their offerings into the temple treasury. And he's watching lots of rich people and sees them throwing the money into the coffers. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. And Jesus sees the widow 
And in the midst of all the rich people throwing money here and there, she drops two small coins into the temple treasury. Now, for me, the verbs paint a picture. You've got the rich people throwing their money and the widow humbly dropping two coins. And so, Jesus calls his disciples to him. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Jesus calls his disciples over to him. This is... This is the time when Jesus switches from public ministry to speaking directly to his disciples. And we'll see this week and next week that Jesus is teaching them as a small group about what is going to happen. Jesus knew what was coming, but the disciples didn't understand. For them, and I know this sounds weird, it had almost become routine. It was almost another day at the office. Um, in, I get this idea from Luke's summary of this very day in the temple. So Mark doesn't give it this, but Luke says, every day Jesus went to the temple to teach. And each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. And the crowds gathered at the temple early each morning to hear him. Just another day at the office for the disciples. But Jesus knew what was coming. So, this is the greatest leadership development program of all time. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, knowing what's ahead for each of his disciples, calls them to himself. And the phrase that's implied is, they came over to him. Right? It doesn't say that, but I think they'd make it a point if they didn't. And so now Jesus is sitting with the disciples And what does he teach them? He says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Now, you have to agree with me that this is the greatest teacher-student opportunity of all time. They're sitting at the feet of Jesus. So what's the lesson that Jesus is teaching them? Well, I wish I had a better answer for you. But the fact is, I don't know. In fact, as we look at what biblical scholars have said about this passage, there's a number of different views about what Jesus' lesson was that he was teaching the disciples. What is his point? Um, the, The first way to look at this is the one that I grew up with and heard most often. And it is that the widow is the hero in the story. She's to be commended. She's to be copied. She gave sacrificially and not just a small percentage of what she owned. How many of you have heard that kind of interpretation of this? Yeah, I think there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, it fits well with some of Jesus' other teaching. Like when he told the rich young ruler, go and sell all you've got, give to the poor, and then come follow me. Or when he told the the prospective disciples during the interview process, hey, foxes have holes, but I don't have a place to lay my head. And I think the other reason that we've heard it a lot through the years is because it fits really well with sermons on giving to the church. It does. And I don't know whether the preachers that I heard preach this 
um, did it on purpose or not, but I remember feeling ashamed when I heard sermons on this passage because it felt like the crux of the, of the message was, hey, the widow, read it, gave all she had to live on. Why aren't you giving more? And, and so, but that's a, that's, a, that's a hard message. I'm glad that here at First Free Church, we don't have that expectation. It might be interesting if I stood up here and said, look, the Bible clearly says, give everything you have to live on to the church. Now, Adam might have a nicer car, but that's only one possible interpretation of this passage. The second possible interpretation, and one that I'll be honest with you, I didn't I had never seen until I started preparing for talking this morning. Um, is that the widow is the victim in the story. And that she is to be pitied and we should have compassion for her because she's been taken advantage of by the corrupt temple system and by the corrupt, greedy temple rulers that had put expectations on her to give beyond her means. Now, this makes sense to me for a few reasons. The first is, if we go back one verse to Mark 12, 40, and remember what we talked about last week. Remember that they said, they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property. That they is the temple rulers and the teachers of the law. And other translations use even more violent language, like they devour widows' houses. And so how do they do that? Well, one possible explanation is that they place on the widows expectations for giving beyond their means. And at a time when the temple system should be caring for the most vulnerable in the community, it actually is extracting more from them. And so one way to interpret what Jesus is teaching fits with the verse we saw in Exodus last week, which is God saying you must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear their cry. And so maybe what Jesus is teaching the disciples is about the religious systems of the day and the need for God's people to care for the most vulnerable. But we honestly don't know. We do know a few things. We know that Jesus is aware of what's coming. We know that Jesus is intentionally developing his disciples and preparing them. And we know that he has compassion for the most vulnerable in the community. We even know later in the New Testament, maybe a glimpse of how this teaching has prepared the disciples for what God has prepared for them. And we're going to get to that, but I want to share one more thing that is, is kind of frustrating about this passage. As I read it, we don't get to know what happens to the widow. And that bothers me. I mean, here's this widow. In the passage, we get to watch her drop all that she has to live on into the coffers of the temple. And then 
nothing. There's, there's no never-ending jug of oil or flour like the widow of Zarephath. There's no abundant fish and loaves. There's not even the Savior saying, sister, your faith has made you free. I, there's, there's nothing. Here she is, feet from Jesus, in desperate need, and the story doesn't tell us. So, if you'll indulge me, I'll be a little bit presumptuous and tell you what I hope happened to the widow. Okay? I hope that while she was in the temple court to give her offering, she heard Jesus speaking. I hope she was in the crowd. We know she was there. I hope that she was listening. I hope that when she heard Jesus talking compassionately about the plight of widows and she heard him condemning the misdeeds of the rulers and the teachers of the law, I hope that that resonated with her and it drew her in. I hope that she paid special attention during that week of Pentecost or the week of Passover that was coming up and that she, she listened and she watched as the trial took place and the crucifixion and then the rumors of resurrection and the testimonies of seeing the risen Jesus. I hope that she was in the crowd on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached his message. And, and she was listening. And she was one of the 3,000 that believed and was baptized on that day and became the beginning of the Christian church. I hope that she was in that group in Acts 2 that we read about that had everything in common and devoted themselves to the disciples' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to praying for each other, that they did life together. I hope she was in that community. And I hope that we meet our widow again in Acts 6. So let me tell you what happens in Acts 6 because we're going to meet at least our disciples again. In Acts 6, verse 1, it reads, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, the church is growing, there were rumblings of discontent. Now, this divides our crowd into those that have been in leadership positions in the church and those that haven't. Because those of you that have been in leadership positions in the church get a chill when you read the words, rumblings of discontent. In a church our size, there are always a few rumblings of discontent. We know that this church was at least three times as big as First Free Church. There were rumblings of discontent. Sometimes the rumblings are quiet. Sometimes the rumblings are loud. But there are always rumblings. And they always find their way to those in leadership in the church. And that's what happened here. The rumblings of discontent made their way to the disciples who were leading this new church that was growing explosively. And what were the rumblings of discontent about? They were specifically about how the widows were being treated by the newly established religious systems that the apostles were overseeing. Let me show you. Sorry, I got caught up in my notes. The rumblings of discontent always makes me a little bit uneasy, and I need to get refocused. So, 
continuing in Acts. It says, The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now, I admitted to you that we don't know if our widow was in that group. We don't even know if our widow spoke Greek or Hebrew. But we do know that the problem that's facing the church is one of how the religious structure cares for the widows. And I think the disciples have been prepared for this. Here's the conflict the way I see it. On one hand, the, the church is demanding that the, that the disciples, the leaders of the church now, spend more time caring for the widows. They're not being taken care of appropriately, and they need to be attended to. And so, the cry is, you guys have got to do something about this problem. On the other hand, the apostles have received directly from Jesus the Great Commission, that, that call to take the gospel into all the world. And so they need to spend their time spreading the gospel. And they can't do both. Now, if you're familiar with the passage, you know that it, you know that it, um, it ends with them appointing a group of men led by Stephen to care for the widows in the distribution of food. And they make a good decision that solves the problem and allows the gospel to spread while the most vulnerable in the community are still cared for. And I see the preparation for that decision, for that leadership taking place in the courtyard of the temple when Jesus calls them to him. Paul kind of gives us an assertion here in Ephesians when he says, we, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. When we believe in God, he creates us anew. The verse also confirms that God has prepared for us good works. Now, my high school friends want to scream, I am enthusiastic to be here at this point, because we start every Sunday night with Ephesians 2.10. And we call it our student proclamation. It'd probably do us good to make that our proclamation as well. Let me share an example of how this God preparing us for what he's prepared for us looks like from my personal life. And as a dad of five, I get to watch as God prepares and deploys each of my kids. And so let me tell you a little bit about how I've seen that in one of my kids my daughter, Lauren. Now, when Lauren was 10 years old, she expressed to us a desire to move to China and work with orphans. And nobody lets their 10-year-old move to China. But she cared so much about the plight of orphans that she learned about as we were um, in the process of adopting our fourth son, Andrew, um, that she just cared about it. And even at her birthday party, she said, don't bring presents, 
but instead make donations to this organization that cares for orphans in China. Um, that led to, through high school and college, four different trips to China on short-term missions, and a trip to Haiti with our church, and a month in Malawi at a Rafiki village that cared for orphans and uh, widows. And then it, it also led her to go to college and get an education. She got a bachelor's degree in nonprofit administration, learning the tools and the techniques for managing nonprofit organizations that, that might serve the most vulnerable in the community. Then she got a job. Her mother and I were very glad that she got a job. And she got it right here at First Free Church, where she served as the coordinator of the nursery ministry. And she worked with little boys and little girls, teaching them about Jesus. And she worked with the adults, coordinating them. And I think she would tell you that the latter was harder than the former. Because you all are more difficult to work with than the babies. And all of that, in hindsight, we can see as God preparing her for where she is now. She's spending a year at Maria's Big House of Hope, which is an orphanage run by the organization Show Hope that Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife Mary Beth started and that exists there in the middle of China to care for some of the sickest and most vulnerable orphans in the country. And she gets to spend a year living in that orphanage and teaching preschool to those little boys and girls. But she's prepared for it. Now, there are three observations that I want to share with you from that. The first comes from a phone conversation that I had with my son, Rob. And he said, man, we were talking about how Lauren is just doing great in China. And he said, man, I wish that I could show 10-year-old Lauren what she would be doing at 24. And when I finished the phone call, I actually made a note of that. I wrote it down because that's what I wish for you. I wish I could do that. I wish I could say, here's how God's going to use what's going on in your life right now in five years or 10 years or 15 years for the purposes that he's already prepared for you. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? But that's not how it works. It's not how it worked for the disciples. They were in the courtyard. They were being taught by Jesus. And I don't think they necessarily understood the lesson as he was teaching it. Well, the reason I say that is because they don't ask any clarifying questions like, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents. They don't follow up. They don't say, can you explain this to us? In fact, all they do is change the subject. In both Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel, immediately after Jesus has taught them from the example in front of them of the widow, they say, wow, this is a pretty building. Look at these stones. And that gives Jesus an opportunity to continue the lessons. But I think they understood later on, in hindsight, what he was doing. The second observation from Lauren's journey is simply that she's having a blast. And I think this is true 
that when you and I are about doing what God has prepared for us to do, and we're around people that are doing what God's prepared them to do, there is joy. Now, I'm not saying that living in an orphanage and working with orphans is easy. And I'm not even saying that every day is happy. But when we're doing what God has prepared us to do, there's joy and there's community. And Lauren has found that. And if you find yourself completely lacking joy or you feel like you're removed from community, I would say one place to look is, am I busy doing what God's prepared me to do? Am I around people that are doing what God's prepared them to do? Because that's where I found the greatest joy. Third observation. The third observation is actually a bonus because when I wrote the talk and I worked through it, there were only two. But I found out that Adam was going to make a comment about the need for workers in Kid Connection. And it, it connected for me the fact that Lauren was in fourth grade and she was being taught by people like Bill and Nancy Craig in Kid Connection. And others, some of you that are in the room, taught Lauren during Kid Connection. And it was in fourth grade that God started touching her heart and drawing her into this adventure that has led her, at least now, to live in China for the next year. What's really cool is we don't know what he's preparing her for here. So if you heard Adam's announcement about the Kid Connection need, and you said, yeah, I don't really think that it's for me to watch some kids. Let me emphasize the potential impact that you can have. Because I know from firsthand experience that God touches the hearts of nine and 10 year old kids and plants seeds through the faithful service of Kid Connection volunteers that blossom into lifetime ministry. If God's talking to you about working in Kid Connection, go hear Mary Suzanne rap and give it a shot and see what God will do. It might be that he's been preparing you all along exactly for that. Okay, let me bring this in for a landing. As I've thought about this and prayed about it, I think there are three different ways that you might be identifying with what we've talked about this morning. The first is that you might identify with our widow. You might be facing desperate times. You might have spent your life trying to satisfy the expectations of the religious systems, thought you were doing what you could do. But just like our widow, who was just feet from Jesus. Jesus is close for you. In a few minutes, we're going to sing our last song, and um, after the song, there will be a group of members of our prayer team who will be up here. And one great response to this morning's message would be to trust Jesus with your life. He's faithful to prepare us for what he's prepared for us. And I know that my friends on the prayer team would love to pray with you.
The second possible way that you've identified with this is to identify with that 15-year-old junior counselor who was completely unprepared. And you may feel like it's scary to think about what God might use you for, in Kid Connection or anywhere else. My encouragement for you this morning is that at least from this passage, I feel like life becomes less what happens to you and more what's happening for you as God prepares you for what he's prepared for you. There's a third way you may identify, and that's with the disciples amid the rumblings of discontent. You may be up to your eyeballs in the challenges of the ministry and the work that God's given you to do. And for you, I just encourage you to press on. God's prepared you. Stand in what he's given you to do and trust him. On the tear out of our bulletins is that Ephesians 2.10 verse. And the back, I asked them to leave it blank and white so that you could write on it. So pull out a pen or a pencil, and I'll tell you what I want you to write on this. I want you to write a reminder to yourself that says, God is preparing me for the good works that he's prepared for me. And I want you to put that someplace this week where it will remind you. You know, maybe I'll tape it to the head of my driver because that's about all it's good for. And as you see it, remember how God worked graciously with the disciples to prepare them for some of the hardest leadership challenges that anybody ever has faced. And how God is being faithful to prepare you for what he's prepared for you. God is faithful to prepare us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that we get to watch the disciples learn from you and then faithfully serve you in the church. I thank you for the way that we see you work in our lives and the lives of those around us. And I pray that you would be with each person here. Help us to see how you love us, how you call us, how you send us, and how you prepare us for what you've prepared for us. We give you all the praise in your name. Amen.